Would you please take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3? Revelation chapter 3. We've been away from Revelation because of the holiday, and now we return to it. And as we do, by way of review and recovering what we have learned so far, just want to begin by perhaps drawing a picture for us, getting us to think of something. When a victim stands before a police lineup, that person will look at a number of people who stand before him, and as he looks at those people standing before him, he will notice different features about those people that cause them not to be the person who is the perpetrator. Perhaps they're going to look at the array of people before them and say, well, the perpetrator was a different height, a different weight, a different gender, a different skin tone, had different hair color, or he was a different age. So he he looks there and, and he starts weeding out which ones obviously weren't the perpetrator and which ones might, which one perhaps might have been. And I bring up that image just to remind us of the fact that we are going through the seven churches of Asia, and it is possible for us to consider these churches in such a way that we look at them and perhaps we identify with one of them and then we discard the rest. We kind of say, well, that's the kind of church that I would identify with and I'm obviously not the other one. I don't fit that description Therefore, I'm just going to pass by them, not really reflect on what Christ says to those churches. And if we do that, we, we short-circuit Jesus Christ's express intention in the writing of these letters, because these seven letters were to be of benefit to all the churches of Asia. And we know that because of the closing words of Jesus Christ at the end of each one of these letters. Each one of these letters ends with, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that it is written plural, churches. Underline it. Because the command makes a careful consideration of each letter mandatory for each church. So we have to study each letter and consider how it and its teaching apply to us. If we simply say, well, this one's us and these other ones are just someone else, we've bypassed the benefit that Christ calls for in this text. So if you wonder, well, how have we tried to benefit from each one of the letters? I've tried to show us that. I've tried to to preach these messages in a way that applies the truths of these of letters to us. I've done that in the homiletical outlines where I've said Christ expects our church to this, given what he said to that church. I've tried to take those churches which we might not readily identify with and take the stuff of what Christ is teaching and apply it to us because that's what Christ wants us, wants of us. He wants us to learn from each one of these letters. Now, sometimes he, we, we ought to learn from the things he says positively. Like he says to the church at Ephesus, do the first works. And that can inform us what we ought to be doing. Or Christ says things that are negative. 
He says to another church, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Obviously, it's something that's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. But we can learn by either positive example or negative example. The key is we have to give ourselves to what Christ is saying to us. We cannot tune out as soon as we come to the next church. And if perhaps there's any church that it would be very tempting to tune out, it would be this one, the church at Sardis. They were known as the dead church. It would be very easy for us just to tune right out, having heard that. But my brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to this morning consider integrity. Integrity. Let's pray. Father, as we give ourselves to what you have said, we ask that you would allow it to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And Father, that you would give us a joy in walking in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. You may have noticed this morning that we still have Christmas decorations on the front door. We still have our two Christmas wreaths. And you might also have noticed that they still look fresh. That's because they're fake. They're not real. Because if they were real, they would certainly be dead by now. Now, I appreciate the smell of a fresh Christmas wreath or a fresh Christmas tree. But, you know, decorations can be artificial. Artificial decorations, they don't dry out. They don't need a lot of attention. Artificial decorations often don't uh, catch fire, as other Christmas trees are, happen to do. Now, it's obviously a matter of per- personal preference with the way you choose to decorate in your home, whether or not you want to use real plants or artificial. But there are things that must not be artificial. There are things that really need to be real. The genuine article is the one that actually matters. For instance, Try convincing a child who is hungry that he can have a piece of fruit from the children's play kitchen. It's, it's not going to satisfy their hunger. Or try convincing a, a young 16-year-old son that this Hot Wheels car will do just fine. It, it won't because there are instances where the real deal is what is necessary and essential. And that's the truth when it comes to a church of Jesus Christ. A church needs to have integrity. You say, well, what is integrity? Integrity is a state of being whole or entire or complete, positively speaking. Now, if we're going to talk about integrity from a negative standpoint, we would say that integrity is a state of being unblemished or undefiled or unsoiled. Something that has integrity could be likened to something that is NIB, one of those modern day, uh, you know, acronyms and such. NIB. If you see that online, it stands for new in the box. Okay? New in the box. That means it has all of its pieces. There is nothing that is marred or damaged. It has complete integrity. Everything's there and it's unspoiled. That's what Christ expects of a church. A church must be what a church ought to be. And we learn that truth from 
Christ's letter to this church in Sardis, which is about 30 miles due south of Thyatira in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we learn the importance of the church's integrity through the negative example of this church in Sardis. Sardis, Because Sardis did not have integrity except for a few. You should notice that contrast in the midst of the passage where it's divided. You see in verse 4, it begins with the word but or yet. And that marks off the second part of the, of the letter from the first. And what you see in verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6 is noticeably different. The tone changes. The first three verses warn. The last three verses promise. In the first part, you hear Christ say to the church, you have a name. You see that if you have the King James or the New American Standard. It's kind of hidden in the ESV when it says reputation. But the word there is the word for name. You have a name. But the problem is it's only a name. It's just a name. It's just a label. In the second part, verse 4, he says to that same church, but you have a few names in Sardis, which you see in the King James and the ESV. You see, there were some who had integrity. Today, what we're going to do is consider the first half of this letter, verses 1 through 3, and realizing the fact that Christ requires integrity in his church. We're going to see in the first three verses that this church lacked integrity. It was a nominal church. So from these three verses, I have three points for us, which we're only going to get to two today, given the length of this sermon. Point one. Christ wants our church to be what we say we are. Christ wants our church to be what we say we are. Christ declared the church in Sardis to be alive in name only. You see, Christ is fully aware of the state of each one of his churches, each one of his local churches. And we know that because as we look at this letter to the church in Sardis, he refers to their works. Look at verse 1. I know your works. Again, in verse 2, at the end, he talks of their works. He knows what they're doing. You see, what Christ says reveals that Christ knows the true state, the true condition of his church, of our church. He said of the church in Sardis that they were dead. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, Thus saith him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation. You have the name of being alive, but you are dead. The point is simply that people considered the church in Sardis to be alive, but Jesus considered it dead. We have to wonder, how is it that there can be such a difference of opinion? The church must have been gathering. They must have been functioning. They must have been identifying as Christ's followers. In our lingo, we would say this church had a building. They had a sign out front with the church's name on it. On Sunday mornings, there were regular services that were held. The lights were on. The cars were parked all around the church. From all appearances, they were alive. They had a reputation But their reputation wasn't the reality. And we know that because of what Christ said. And what we have to realize is what Christ said is what actually matters. In the end, it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what Christ thinks. He says they're dead. That makes me think, 
well, why would Christ write to a dead church in the first place? If he knows they're a dead church, why waste any time speaking to them? They're dead. Well, in short answer to that question, he writes to them, he speaks to them because they name his name. They profess his name, even though their profession is either false or it's failing. What we see is that Christ cares enough to still speak to them. And, and that not, ought not seem strange to us given what we find throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel were the people of God. Yet they forsook the true God so often in favor of false gods. But God continues to send prophets to his rebellious people. They, the people of Israel owned God's name, but they were not God's people because they ran away from God and after other gods. Yet just think about how God treated them year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And Jesus Christ even says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. The point simply is, Jesus Christ extends himself towards those who name him, even though they're dead. And that's really encouraging because there are probably a lot of dead churches today. And Jesus Christ is still willing to speak to them. But we have to figure out, well, what, what would make a church dead? If we say there are dead churches, what makes a church dead? If the average Joe, a person who isn't biblically astute, perhaps nominally religious, if he attends a church and he comes out and reports that the church is dead, why does he say that? I would say that the common Joe says that a church is dead because they sing hymns. I think that's a popular opinion. They sing hymns. Dead church. They don't rock. They are just stuck in the past. So a church is dead because it's not plugged in. If it's going to be effective, it's got to be plugged in. Now, I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later, but I want us to look at what actually makes a church dead in Christ's opinion. And to do that, we need to skip down to verse 2 in the second half of the verse. Because Jesus has already talked about their works in verse 1, and he's going to talk about their works again in verse 2. Let's read it together. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The point there is that Christ found their works inadequate, not enough, not sufficient. And from that, we may learn that Christ expects progress in our church. He expects progress. When he inspects his church, he expects progress. And in the case of this church in Sardis, they were dead because their works weren't enough. They weren't complete. I want to just help us understand this by noticing the the marginal cross-reference. You see that for verse 2? The reference there is to Acts 14, verse 26. This will help us understand a bit of what it means for works to be complete. This is uh, where it says, For there they, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been con- 
commended to the grace of God for their work that they had fulfilled. Now, that kind of brings us right into the end of a story that we don't know where we are. If we back up to Acts 13, that's where Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church in Antioch. They threw out chapters 13 and 14. They've gone throughout Asia Minor, giving the gospel. And now we have the end of their journey in verse 26, where it says that their, their work they had fulfilled. Their mission trip was now done. They'd accomplished it. They had been sent out on a purpose, and now they return because they've fulfilled it. Their work is complete in contrast to the situation we find in Sardis. Their work wasn't complete. If we wanted to really press home on this point, we could talk about Jesus' parable of the talents, where two of the servants were faithful, but one was not. His work was not complete. Or we could talk about Christ's call for watchfulness in Mark chapter 13. He expects people to do things. But what I want us to draw our attention to is a physical feature of the city of Sardis. I want to bring us to a historic reality. You see on the slide before us the pillar there, and now you see this picture. This is Sardis. And what you notice here is a pillar that was for a temple. This is for the temple Artemis, a goddess. And what you saw on the slide and the rest of those is a portion, the top portion and the bottom portion of a column of that temple. And these, these columns were 58 feet tall. And you could go to the, this ruins today, and, and you'd find it to be quite impressive, especially compared to the ruins of other cities in this area, like the city in Ephesus. This is, this is quite amazing what's still there for us to see today. But what you need to realize as you look at what still stands and is impressive, this temple to Artemis was never finished. You say, well, why? In the end of the day, we identify Ephesus with the temple of Artemis because that's, in the end, who got the bid. You have a couple cities who wanted to have the temple. It was Ephesus that won out. So as much as Sardis wanted to have a temple for Artemis. They got going, and then it stopped. It stopped. The roof was never raised. It was stopped. It was never whole. It was never complete. It was unfinished. And that, that physical feature in Sardis mirrors the situation in the church in Sardis. Christ considered the works in the church of Sardis woefully inadequate, not what he expected. And that just goes to show us that Christ has a very specific plan for the church and an expectation for the church. And if we're going to be able to assess how we're doing and whether our works are sufficient or whether they're inadequate, we have to first agree on, well, what is, what is the plan for the church? And this is something that ought to be just firmly rooted in each one of our minds. From, from the Great Commission, we know that the purpose of the church is to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely what we are here for. If we talk about it in the words of Ephesians 4, we would say that the church is here for the work of the ministry in humble obedience to the Word, word, word of God. Okay? That is why we are here. And with that said, we can ask ourselves, well, how is our progress in that? How are we in the work of the ministry? How are we in the Great Commission? Because Christ expects us to be making progress. We ought to be 
what we should be. We ought to be what we say we are. The problem with this church was that the reality didn't match the reputation. The church was one in name only. It's good to have a name, but a name's not enough. It's good to have a sign with a name. That's not enough. It's good to have some motions, but that's not enough. This church needed integrity, and Christ calls every church to be a church of integrity. And from there, we move on to the fact that if they're going to be a church of integrity, a church has to be alert. That's what I want us to see in verses 2 and verse 3. It comes up twice here. Verse 2, it begins with the words, wake up. And you'll see that again in verse 3. Christ is calling his church to wake up. And from that, we learn that Christ wants our church to be aware of our spiritual condition. It is not okay for us to be oblivious to how we're doing spiritually. That's why Christ called the church in Sardis to wake up. And in verses 2 and 3, Christ gives five commands. He gives five commands to a dead church, and that's going to take up the rest of our time this morning. And what those commands do is show us that this church lacked awareness, and they needed to get in gear. They needed to start doing what Christ expected of one who owns his name. So first, we see in verse 2, Christ expects us to be watchful. We know that because Christ directed the church to be alert. Be alert. Wake up. This is easy to understand because we parents are going to have to do the same thing tomorrow morning with our kids. We're going to have to shake them and get them awake because it's time to go to school again. They've been on break for a long time. It's time to wake up. Sometimes that can be a very difficult process, a tall task. And it's a tall task when it comes to arousing a church that's dead. That's a tall task, particularly because a church like this is not aware that it's dead. They need to be told that. They're in such a spiritual stupor that they struggle to come to. They need an awakening. And some of you know the the history of the church in America, that there was a great awakening in the 1730s and 1740s that was led by pastors like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. These were times when there was a great deal of religious people who became aware of their spiritual state through the preaching of God's word. They realized that they were dead. They realized what God had said for them. And they came to see themselves through the lens of God's word. They had an awakening as God's word was pressed upon them. It's hard to get those who are dead to wake up. And beyond that, the church in Sardis needed to become constantly alert of their spiritual condition. Not just wake up, but stay awake and stay watchful. Christ expects continued watchfulness. I was trying to consider what in my life reminds me of what it is to be watchful. And it has to be when in my possession was an engagement ring. I no longer possess that engagement ring. I've given it away. But when I had the engagement ring, I always knew exactly where it was. I had never spent that much money in my life. And now here it is in this little object. And I'm not going to let go of it. I'm not going to misplace it. I'm going to check on it all the time. I always knew where it was until I gave it away. I was watchful. 
Another illustration of watchfulness that maybe you can, uh, you know, come to and, and understand was when I first became a dad. There you are. It's the first night in the hospital. You obviously can't sleep because the beds for dads are never good in the hospital room. But there I was laying beside the crib where Elijah was, and I just remember being up all night. And every time I heard a sound, I was up looking at him. Does he need anything? Did he roll over? And then when he didn't make sounds, I was up because he would breathe, and then I would start counting. And I wouldn't hear things. And those of you who know infants, like, they don't always breathe, you know, such things. And all night, I was getting up and looking at him, and I was watchful of him. That's the kind of watchfulness Christ wants. He wants us to be aware of our spiritual state. He expects this kind of alertness of spiritual condition in all of his churches. So this is what we need to know. We need to know what we ought to be doing and how we're doing with what we ought to be doing. We need to know where we're strong and where we're weak. We need to know the dangers that are within. We need to know the dangers that are without. We need to be well aware of that at all times. That's what Christ expects. And if we're not spiritually aware, we're spiritually slothful. We're asleep. One person has said, being asleep spiritually is being very busy with my schedule and neglectful of the master's service. Being asleep is knowing what you ought to do for Jesus, but choosing to please yourself instead. Christ's admonition and his expectation is that we would wake up and stay awake. That's what Christ wants. The second imperative of the five is this, that Christ expects us to revive what's valuable. Christ expects us to revive what is valuable. And we know that because Christ directed this church in Sardis to strengthen what remained. That's what it says in verse 2. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now here at the beginning, I want to just, I want to make us all aware of there is a great break between modern church revitalization wisdom and what Christ has just said. Modern church wisdom, if a church is dying, modern church wisdom is that you need to bring in something new in order to revitalize the church. But Christ's admonition is that you actually need to recover what's old. Christ calls the church back to the old, whereas modern church wisdom calls the church to update something, need to get something new, something modern, get in step with how things are. But Christ's wisdom is that things need to be rebooted, be set back. And just saying that, I want us to take careful notice of, of, the, of the position here, of the direction that is being, that is, the Christ is calling for. Is he calling us to look forward or look back? Look back. Is he calling us to something new or something old? Old. So we learn that the church needs to discern valuable tradition. The church needs to strengthen that valuable tradition that it's able to discern. And the reality is that most churches today don't don't go along with Christ says here. 
when it comes to revitalizing, revitalizing a church, most people would say that you need to add hype, you need to add appeal. And that's the stuff of the seeker-sensitive movement, which is so often welcomed without any, any kind of uh, care or evaluation. It is welcomed into many Orthodox evangelical churches. People think if you want a church to be revitalized, you need smoke and lights, sounds and sights, and you'll get rising attendance numbers. You need an update. You need to rebrand. You need to revitalize. But so often the case when that kind of thing happens, all those sights and sounds, all the smoke and lights, that's nothing more than a perfume that is masking the smell of a rotting corpse of a church. You say, well, people are going to church. Yes, they're going to church more because they enjoy being entertained and they're now going to a concert at church. Yes, they're entertained. But they're not going there to give God the glory due to his name and to humbly to submit themselves to God's word. I just at least want us to figure out the trajectory on what Christ is saying. He's saying to go back. Grab what remains, what's still there. Now, in my opinion, our church values and tries to strengthen what is valuable from the past. That's my opinion. But we know of churches that were once Orthodox and Evangelical, denominations that were like that, that purposefully are no longer holding on to those things of the past. There are churches that have done away with all traditions. They have set aside the inspiration and authority of the Scriptures, and they have gotten up to speed with modern-day culture. And Christ's admonition to a church like that, to a modern-day church of Sardis, is to strengthen what remains. Instead of focusing on new methods and sounds, pay attention to what's valuable that may still be kicking around. What am I talking about? This is what I mean. If you if want to be at a church like that, he needs to pay attention to the public reading of Scripture that, yet, that hasn't yet been thrown out of the liturgy of that church. That's something that remains, the, the speaking, the public speaking of God's Word. Or a person at a church like that where they still observe the Lord's Supper and baptism, he should thoughtfully participate in those things and talk about the gospel significance of those ordinances of the church. That may have been forgotten. It probably been forgotten in a church like this. In a church that still sings the doxology, that person ought to sing it and talk to other people about the importance of praising God. They need to find what's valuable and hold it up inside a modern-day church of Sardis because Christ commands them to strengthen what remains. You say, what happens if someone in a church like that starts doing that, starts singing hymns as if God deserved glory. Well, if that starts happening, there is something that church history shows us that will probably happen. When someone starts doing what Christ commands here in a church like that, the church historically shows them the door. They get rid of them. That's what happened to the Wesleys. The Wesleys in the Church of England, they saw how dead the state church was because to be a a citizen of England was to be a member of the Church of England. There was no separation between church and state. They saw how dead the church was. And when they started preaching the gospel, 
the churches kicked them out. They were banned and barred from preaching in the churches of England. And that's the same thing that happened years, years before in Israel. Because the people of God who had forsaken the true God began to do something when certain people tried to cover what was old, tried to call people back to the old ways. Israel didn't accept the prophets who were called, who were calling them back to God's law. You say, how did they not accept them? They stoned them. That's what Jesus says they did. They stoned those who were sent to them. But every once in a while, as you read through the Old Testament, you find a glimmer of hope. And we read about this morning, as Brother Dave read from 2 Kings 22, we learned how the book of the law was found in the days of King Josiah. And I tell you, that's just mind-boggling to think about. The people of God found a copy, found a scroll of God's law, of the book of the law. And to modernize that for a moment, it would be like, you know, some church member in a church is cleaning, and all of a sudden, as he's going through a closet, he found a stack of Bibles. And he looks at it and says, wow, a Bible. I've only ever heard about these things. Look at this. And he begins to read it. He says, look at what this says. This is God's Word. And you can be sure When God sent revival and reform in the days of King Josiah, what they did, they took not something new, but they looked at what God said and recovered something of years gone by. One of the first things that they did in Israel was begin to again celebrate the Passover, which had been forsaken. Again, what I'm trying to show us is that what what the church is called to do is look back at what matters. Look back. Not new methods, not new sounds. Look back. Jesus expects the church to revive what is valuable. And what is valuable is that which is connected to the Word of God and its necessary applications. There is the measure of what is valuable. What relation does it have to what God says and the application of what God says? Those things are valuable. So, brothers and sisters, while I believe by God's grace that we are not a church of Sardis, I need us all to realize that the downward path to Sardis begins when we fail to discern what's valuable. When we fail to hold what is valuable up. I'd say the common problem in churches today is that things that are of less value, methods, those things are held out, held up, and they crowd out the things that really matters. We just got to pray for God's help and his grace that lesser things be kept as lesser things, that the valuable things not be crowded out for the things that really matter. Christ expects the church to revive what is valuable. Thirdly, Christ expects us to bear in mind our commitment to God at first. We find this in verse 3. This is where Christ directed the church to remember their first experience of salvation. You see it in verse 3. Remember then how you received and heard. You see that in the King James. Remember then how you received and heard. What they had received and heard was probably the preaching of the gospel, perhaps through the Apostle John, who was recording the words of Jesus here. And how they received that teaching was with full acceptance and it was with full commitment. The point here is that the memory of their former Christian experience was meant to motivate them to spiritual awareness and sincere commitment to God. Just as the church of Ephesus was called to remember 
remember their former state, and to redo their first works. So this church in Sardis is to recall its experience of things of the former times. Perhaps many in that church did not have any experience to recall, but there must have been some who did. There are some who could think back, what was it like to first be a Christian? Where whatever God wanted me to do, I just just did it. He told me to do it, so I just started doing it. Christ calls them back to that. So what we find is, in the beginning, there is spiritual life and responsiveness to God's word. And that memory of that experience ought to be a motivation for spiritual life and responsiveness to God's word now. That's what Christ is laying before the church in Sardis. I think the application for us is just abundantly clear then. Just think, of, think back how it was when you were first a believer. You just so happily read your Bible. You so happily looked at a text. You saw it, and you just gave yourself to it. I often remember one of my former professors and bosses, bosses and friends who said, if you want to grow, just start doing everything you know God wants you to do, and you'll grow like a weed. Just start doing everything you know, you already know he wants you to do. Don't push back. Just start doing it. Christ expects that. Fourthly, Christ expects us to guard what's valuable. Guard what's valuable because Christ directed this church to keep what remained. It's one thing for us to recover something valuable from the past. It's another thing to retain that. Through the teaching of what is more acceptable, through the teaching of what is more acceptable morally or politically or socially, a church can lose grip on the things that are valuable because of the introduction of something that is more acceptable to our culture. So that's why a church has to be constantly guarding its teaching ministry, whether that teaching is happening in the classroom or behind a pulpit or through the music ministry because Colossians 3.16 says that we are to Teach one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. There must be a guard on that. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, as a gospel minister who will stand before God one day and give account for this church, there is perhaps nothing that I scrutinize more than the teaching that takes place in this church. Because it is so important what is communicated to God's people, that it be in line with what God says. That's one of the chief ways that a pastor shepherds the flock of God. But there's another way that we would do well to take care and to guard what's valuable. And that's to keep role. Keep role. Christ expects the church to be committed to his word. And those kinds of folks should be on the church roles. Membership here. You could imagine what would happen if a church began to welcome those who don't care about God's word. If a church welcomes those kinds of people, very quickly what is valuable will be lost. Gospel ministers will be forced out, even as the Old Testament prophets were stoned. They're forced out. If you'll allow me just for a moment to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptists, it's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. It boasts almost 15 million, I believe. What you notice as you read their stats, you notice that hundreds of pastors every year are forced to resign, and not because of gross sin or heterodoxy. 
they're forced to resign. Say, how does that happen? Well, someone says, we don't want you here anymore, Pastor. When he doesn't leave, they try to count up votes. They gossip. They start petitions. They pressure everything. They pull out of ministry, so he's strapped with all the, the, the burden of ministry. When that doesn't work, they try to not fund the budget so he doesn't get paid. They do everything they can to get the pastor out, to force him to resign. Say, does that really happen? Yes. The Southern Baptists have stats on it. Independent Baptists don't have stats. But I do have pastor friends, and they'll tell me their stories. Say, where does that come from? Does that ever happen before? Absolutely. Paul said to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Here's the point. For the church to guard what's valuable, its leaders have to retain what's valuable in their teaching. And its members must retain those who teach it. Both things have to be there if we're going to be able to obey Christ's admonition to keep it. Let's come to the last point, the last of the five commands Christ gives. Verse 3 here, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. That is to say, Christ expects us to have his mind about our condition We know that because Christ directed this church to change their mind about their condition. They were to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in living. It's something that's uniquely different from regret. Regret is to be sad about something, that it was done, that you perhaps wish it could be undone. But regret does not show any kind of a change of heart. Folks are often willing to admit, yeah, I've made mistakes. I'm sad for how things turned out. I wish they didn't happen that way. But people are often hesitant to actually repent and to change their mind. What Christ calls for is repentance. Repentance is a mental about face where one turns from something to embrace something else. And even so, this church in Sardis needed to have a change of mind about their condition. They were oblivious that they were dead. Spiritually slothful. They need to be shaken into spiritual consciousness. You say, how does that happen? That happens when God's word is proclaimed and people receive it. Just as we had in the call to worship this morning, the psalmist said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You see, we are hardened when we refuse to think, speak, and act in the light of God's word. God wants us to think his thoughts and to retire our own thoughts. We have to if we're going to be spiritually alert, spiritually aware. Five things that Christ calls of that church that we can learn from. Five things to wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. To remember, to keep, and to repent. Now, I was not exactly planning to end there this morning, but given our time, given the size font of my manuscript here, we're going to have to handle verse 3 tonight. But just to summarize what we considered so far this morning, Christ expects the church to have integrity. The church is supposed to be what it ought to be. He expects that of the church. If they're going to have that kind of integrity, they need to be aware of their spiritual condition and doing all they can to retain the things that are valuable. 
It is true that when it comes to decorating, you can choose to have real decorations or artificial decorations. It really doesn't matter. It's up to you. But when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, it has got to be the genuine article. It has got to be the real deal. Christ doesn't want those who bear his name to do so in vain. Because if those who bear his name do it in vain, he doesn't get glory. And he deserves glory. Especially of those who name his name. By God's grace, we can give God glory by just being what God wants us to be, being aware of where we are in our spiritual progress. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the light of your word. Help us to, instead of leaning on our own understanding, to consider what you've said. While we don't perhaps perceive that there is deadness here because we we try to give ourselves to the things that matter. And from my understanding, there are true believers here who try to walk humbly with you and obey what you say and give themselves to both making disciples and giving themselves to the work of the ministry. So, Father, we are thankful for that, but we pray that you'd help us to be watchful and careful We remember how the disciples weren't, even when Christ told them that they would deny him that very night. They weren't listening. They weren't hearing. Father, I pray that you'll give us listening ears. Cause us to hear you. And help us to know how good you are to us when we even have the ears to hear, when we have the motivation in our hearts to apply. What a gracious work you've done in us how kind you are to us, and how we praise your name, that you have not left us in our sin, but you have made us alive, cause us to be responsive to you. Help us to be committed today to respond to you in whatever way you are pressing upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.